Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. My guest today, John Shattuck, is the former U.S. ambassador to the Czech Republic, former president of Central European University, and served as the assistant secretary of state for democracy, human rights, and labor during the Clinton administration. He is currently a professor at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University, and he's also a board member of Humanity in Action. John was deep in the policy debate over the U.S. response to the Rwanda genocide, and he explains how and why the United States failed to mount a meaningful response to this crisis. John also played a key role in uncovering the genocide at Srebrenica, in which some 8,000 Bosnian men and boys were murdered by Serb forces, and he explains how he came to help uncover this crime. John discusses how and why he came to so appreciate human rights and civil liberties and how these values were instilled in him in a young age and how early in his career he got to depose former President Richard Nixon as a lawyer for the American Civil Liberties Union. It's a great story, so stay tuned. As always, please feel free to email me via the contact page at globaldispatchespodcast.com. And thank you all of you who have become my new premium subscribers on Patreon and supporting the show on Patreon. I so appreciate your support. I do this show for all of you and for those of you who become premium subscribers. I have a few extra bonuses that I send your way. Just go to globaldispatchespodcast.com, click on the support the show link, and you'll check out those bonuses. Anyway, thank you all for listening. And here is my conversation with Professor Ambassador John Shattuck. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. That's been my last uh, seven years uh, as when I was president of Central European University. I was <laughs> at a front row seat and in some ways was a uh very actively engaged in the uh what was going on in Hungary at that period and it was of course um a a time when um a kind of new populism and reaction against uh what had happened after 89 uh was manifesting itself and uh in in Hungary in particular it became Hungary was sort of a forerunner of of what now we see uh sweeping Throughout Europe and indeed in the United States, um, which is a, uh, a populist nationalism that is um, really, from my point of view, the most dangerous aspect of it is that it is really severely, uh, uh, potentially at least, eroding 
the whole concept of uh, pluralist society and, and democracy in a uh, traditional sense of um, liberal democracy, which is based on checks and balances and independence of the judiciary and, and a free media and a vibrant civil society, the rule of law, uh, all of these uh, and the minority protection of minorities. Um, all of these are threatened uh, by what, what has uh, been happening. And uh, Viktor Orban has been the champion of it in Hungary, of course. Uh, He's but we've the, seen uh, it the, now. The, for, for listeners who aren't aware, he is the, the, the prime minister of Hungary. Yeah, sorry. Right. He's the prime minister of Hungary, and he's been very open about it. Uh, he said that what he is, is developing is the system of illiberal governance. Yeah, he said um, that explicitly. Which, which, you know, usually they couch these things in, in right. um, like vagaries or, or legalistic uh, words. But no, he, he just outright said it. He's very direct about it. Yeah, he said it in a party, one of his party meetings that he has every summer to sort of rev, rev up his uh, his supporters. Um, and it, it's, it's resonated significantly. I think it's been picked up very much by, uh, uh, the Polish, uh, movement headed by Kaczynski, um, who is of course the head of the Polish party there, but, uh, and then we have, uh, Slovakia has picked up on it. And of course, Marine Le Pen, um, reflected many of the same views. And, and if you look to the East, of course, a lot of this is coming from, um, from Russia and it's now reflected in Turkey and Erdogan. Um, so I think we have a, a, a rather general uh, challenge to the whole concept of liberal democracy. Um, well, well, what, and I think what, what's yeah. particularly interesting about this is that the, the proponents, Orban in particular, are, are saying, look, elections are fine, uh, but we are going to establish what will effectively be a strong central government that will push back all of these uh, uh, pluralist checks and balances, as they're called in the West. So, what, so that's, what are, that's what the danger is. Can, can I ask, like, what are like the roles and responsibilities of entities and organizations like Humanity in Action that promote pluralism and you know, liberal values more, more broadly to mm-hmm. you know, confront these, these trends, which are you know, obviously huge and, and you know, uh, and, and something that seems to be on, on the ascent. Yeah. Well, I think humanity in action plays a very significant role in this. I, I, it does focus largely on uh, the educated youth uh, who are new potential leaders of, uh, and, and emerging leaders of, of democratic institutions and democratic societies. Um, and I think uh Creating a network among these new leaders is a very helpful way for them to uh, begin to understand what's happening around them and then to be able to to take action uh, in response to that. Now, there's no simple solution here. And in fact, uh, some of the undercurrents are very deep and and go far beyond Viktor Orban or Donald Trump or or any other uh, leader of an illiberal regime. Uh, because they they reflect a, a kind of reaction against uh, the whole liberal consensus that emerged out of the post Cold War period from '89 on, uh, consensus based on the concept of uh, broad, relatively unregulated market economics, uh, globalization of economic uh, opportunities, and and uh, the transporter flow of capital, et cetera. 
Um, and the result has been, uh, as well as a civil rights revolution, which uh, is, a, is, a, is a very important legacy of, of liberal democracy, I think a very important product, which means that uh, all aspects of the society have their rights recognized, and that's, that's been uh, very much in, in play in Europe and the United States. But uh, this this populist reaction is very much against that and uh, saying, wait a minute, um, <clears throat> you know, we we are the majority and we don't recognize a, role, a position that we have in this uh, uh, in this um, civil rights world that you've created. And the globalization is is making it more and more difficult for us to get jobs. Um, automation, all these kinds of things. So these are large themes that are behind the the immediate emergence of people like Viktor Orban. But it seems though that that you know, <laughs> undeniably, the um, you know welcoming of Hungary and and Poland into the European Union. What was in like two thousand and eight ish? No, two thousand four. Two thousand four. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're yeah. two thousand four. Um, you know, that, that like undeniably was, you know, led to like, you know, unprecedented economic booms and, 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 uh -huh. and growth in those countries. But it still seems that people are struggling to find their, their place and feel some sort of sense of, of displacement right. 10, 15 years later. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's right. And of course, you know, these countries, Hungary, Poland, Slovakia, um, uh, have a very limited history of democracy and uh, the legacy of totalitarianism weighs very heavily on them. Um, and uh, to the extent that promises were made, uh, and they seem to have been made after 89, that uh, the new democratic liberal market economics were going to bring uh, significant wealth and opportunity, um, you know, there's a feeling that that didn't work out the way it should have. And so there's a reaction against that. So, uh, so that's that's part of the theme here. So I, I know you you mentioned this earlier, but but I know you that you have been around universities. You're pretty much your most of your professional career uh, and professional mm -hmm. life has been in in and around universities. Uh, like, what sort of role do like frankly educated youth and and uh, youth that coalesce around organizations like Humanity in Action have in um you know, in, in, in sort of pushing back against this, this kind of creeping illiberalism, both in Europe and, and in the United States? Like, and, and is there a sense that it's like their responsibility these days? I'm a little removed from all this. I'm like, you know, 36 yeah. years old, not in academia, yeah. not, not around students. So it's like hard for me yeah. to, to judge, but I know that you are, and I know a lot of my listeners, frankly, are, are students as well. So I'm just kind of love to get mm -hmm. your sense on what, what like the temperature is around campuses on for, for activism. Well, I, I, I think there are some dangers on campuses. There's a danger that political correctness is going to set in. There's a danger that freedom of speech uh, gets limited by uh, those who claim to be supporting uh, liberal causes if people disagree with them. So I, I, I don't think we can generalize about campuses. However, the kind of, uh, you know, the cohort of students and and recent graduates that are represented by humanity in action i think are much are very open minded and are trying to uh, understand the larger themes that i've just been outlining rather than simply taking a kind of knee jerk position uh, against uh, certain populist manifestations that they don't like um while at the same time defending the whole concept of rights, the rights revolution that uh, that has made such a difference in societies. 
And, you know, what they can do, I think, is, is, is really above all to understand these larger forces that are at work and to listen as well as engage uh, people who don't agree with them, uh, listen to. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think the, the virtue of humanity in action is that it, it really does stimulate debate and discussion uh, and openness uh, among this uh, younger generation in a way that, frankly, some universities don't adequately do. Um, now, the university that I ran, Central European University in Budapest, uh, is a bit unique because it has students from 110 countries. Um, there's, there's, no, there's no dominant uh, national majority in the university. So in a sense, it is it is the very essence of what humanity in action is all about, which is a lot of different people listening to each other and trying to learn from each other. Um, so I think that's you know that's uh, that's a part of what what the mission of of humanity in action is. I th- you know I, I turn to another aspect of my career though because I have while well, I've spent a lot of time in universities and in Eastern Europe um, as well. I've been in the government, and I've been an ambassador, I've been uh, assistant secretary of state, and I was very much involved in the um, crises of the 1990s, uh, the failed states, particularly in Europe, Yugoslavia, but also in Africa, Rwanda, uh, in, uh, in the Caribbean, and Haiti, um, and the and and uh, and uh, above all, you know, watching what was happening and the pressures that were coming out of those failed states and the terrible humanitarian disasters that occurred. Um, and you know, I, I my experience um, was was very formative when I I was involved in trying to get the U.S. government to intervene in Rwanda and not to uh, allow the. Uh, UN forces to be withdrawn, um, and I took the same position in the uh, humanitarian crisis and the human rights crisis in Haiti when I uh, worked to persuade the, the U.S. government to intervene. That was after uh, Rwanda, and then probably most importantly um, in the uh, Yugoslav crisis in Bosnia. I was the the diplomat who went to Srebrenica and was the first international uh, diplomat to interview the survivors of the uh, genocide that had taken place in Srebrenica, the heart of Europe, actually the first largest Mm -hmm. genocide that had occurred since the Second World War, of course, since the Holocaust, uh, and then participated in Dayton. So, uh, you know, a lot of my experience here is... um, is is how how to deal with what I would call the forces of disintegration that are constantly at work in human societies. So and and how to, what what what's the role of government? What's the role of civil society in pushing back on these things? So so let let's let's talk through all that uh, what you mentioned. But let's start yeah. maybe where where it all began. So where are you from? Where were you born? Well, I'm from New York. Um, I grew up in a small town north of New York, Hastings on Hudson, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then uh, you know grew up in the in the 1950s and, and early 60s. And actually, when I was a a child, uh, the McCarthy uh, movement, which was very dangerous in the United States, uh, in that uh, there were many people falsely accused of being members of the communist party and there was a broad uh 
you know, Senator Joseph McCarthy was uh, very active uh, in essentially disturbing civil liberties. Um, and I learned about this because my father had been a, um, who was a Republican lawyer working in New York, uh, but who was, uh, who was a, a heavily decorated Marine uh, veteran from the Second World War, fought on the Pacific Islands and lost a lot of his friends. And uh, during the McCarthy period, uh, he was uh, very concerned that civil liberties were being undermined in America. And he volunteered to represent uh, a woman who had been accused of, of being a communist hmm. in a very loose uh, way because of various associations that she had. Who was, she who, who was the woman? Like, what was, what, what, how, well, how did no, she it was in be... our town. It was in okay. nobody that you would have heard. Uh, her name was Esther Decker. Um, Just a woman and, in, uh, in, in, in Hastings, in on, Hastings Hudson, on Hudson, which is, yeah, which is a small yeah, bucolic yeah. Uh, town right. north of the little north town of city, north, yeah. north of the city. You Dutchess know County that. or something. Yeah, it's not. Yeah, 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 right. And, you know, I remember coming home from school one day and, and, and my friends had said, is your father a communist? And, uh, you know, this was really quite a shock. So I didn't know what that what to make of that. So I asked him and he sat me down and he gave me a lecture on or gave me a little talk. I was about eight and nine at the time on civil liberties and how uh, people have a right to fairness and to not be and to be protected by uh, from from the kinds of accusations that were being made in that uh, in that period. Anyway, I, I tell you that story at some length, because in some ways it, it was a formative experience for me. It helped, helped you know, help set me on the road, if you will, toward a career in the field of human rights yeah, and, and planted the, the seed of, of, of social justice, I imagine. So yeah. how did you um, kind of from that experience uh, start to engage in, 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 in your studies and, and start to, you know, apply that, um, that inkling of, of a feeling that you want to be involved in broader struggles for civil liberties and, and civil rights? Well, it, it, there were several uh, aspects of my uh, training in this area, if you will. Uh, one is that that I was uh, when I was in college, I was uh, active in the uh, effort to end the war in Vietnam. Uh, I was a, there was a time of great uh, turmoil in the in in the U.S., particularly on campuses, um, and I was uh, one of the organizers of the Vietnam. Uh, moratorium against the war. Um, and, uh, you know, I was also um, close to many people who were involved in the civil rights movement. I went to law school at a time when all of these issues were coming to a head and uh, some of the most successful legislative products of the civil rights movement were, were being enacted, the Voting Rights Act and the um, and and the <clears throat> the Fair Housing Act and various other elements of of, uh, of the civil rights movement. So I could, I saw that it was possible uh, to achieve through law and through political advocacy, um, uh, you know, the protection of minority rights and civil liberties. And so this this was a very important uh, formative period for me. I then went on to law school and. Um, and then worked uh, as a law clerk right after law school, and then and then joined the American Civil Liberties Union as a national staff counsel, and it happened to be right at the time of Watergate. Um, uh -huh. And so I was 
I, I was thrust into the forefront of, of the, a lot of the civil liberties issues there. Um, and one of my cases uh, over the next five years uh, involved a uh, challenge to the illegal wiretaps that were uh, put on the various um, reporters and, and other uh, and others from the White House by Nixon and and uh, and some of his associates. And Kissinger, right? And when, I, when, wasn't that like the, the the thing that like Kissinger and, and Nixon would wiretap yeah. people they suspected of leaking things to the press? Right. Yeah. yeah. And enemies. And of course, there was the Nixon yeah, the enemy, enemy list, list there was right? The, the famous enemies list. There was also the misuse of the intelligence agencies, the FBI, the CIA, mm-hmm. etc., to to spy on on enemies. So what sort of case, like, well, like any, and, any, any particular just the, enemy the, that you The highlight of that yeah. for me, in yeah. a sense, was I, I got a court order for uh, to take the deposition uh, of former, then former President Nixon, uh, after he had left the office so. in this case. And his uh, his testimony in my deposition actually made the case, and, and he was he and others were held to have violated the rights of my client. Who uh, who's your client? Was, Morton Halperin. Oh, Morton Halperin. Relatively yes. well known guy. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So, um, so he, fa- right, in, and if I'm, I'm trying to remember my history here, but he was accused, I think falsely, by the Kissinger, by Nixon administration right. of leaking the Pentagon Papers, right? Right. Well, yeah. they didn't, I don't think they ever got so far as to accuse him of leaking the Pentagon mm-hmm. Papers. It was pretty clear that that was Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah. But they, you know, he was, he was part, he was a, he was part of a large group that were about 30 of them of mm-hmm. people who were uh, who were generally accused of leaking information mm-hmm. uh there was no specific evidence that he that he had or leaked anything that was particularly damaging i mean obviously leaks go on in washington all the time mm-hmm. but um, you can't like wiretap your <laughs> right your yeah well there was a, yeah. well that's the point there yeah. was a, there was no court order there was a, there were there was a violation of a federal yeah. statute to, in doing this the constitution itself so anyway, I, I got I sort of cut my teeth on on the whole Watergate crisis. So what was it like was, to sit across from from Richard Nixon and 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 kind of grill him? Was it? It, it was a little satisfying. I have to imagine. Yeah, it was. Like it was. A uh, guy like you. Yeah. Well, it it had come rather quickly after some of the things that he'd been doing. That's right. Um, and you know, he's clearly a very talented man, but but also uh, extremely. Um, how shall I say? I mean, he just he, he he had all the arrogance of the imperial presidency about him, and he still had it after leaving office. Um, and that, frankly, was what made our case because he kept he said, "No," his lawyers kept interrupting him and saying, "You know, you don't need to answer these questions because you can assert executive privilege or something." He said, "No, I don't want to do that. I'm going to say that as as president, I had the authority to do whatever was necessary under any circumstances to protect the security of the country, which in general terms is true. But then when you push it to the question of, you know, whether the rule of law and, and the basic principles of the wiretap legislation that we were enforcing applied to the president, he basically said, I'm above the law. So, um, you know, which had been his position, of course, in the in, in the impeachment proceeding. But you could see you could see how he was impeached because he said he's, he's not a he was not a terribly likable or charismatic figure um, as I was dealing with him. So that was kind of interesting. This all took place 
about a year or two before the David, famous David Frost interview, which ended up being a you know the yes, Frost Nixon. The Frost I don't know if you've seen that. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that whole thing. Okay. But I I felt that actually what I had done was was more interesting because <laughs> it was in an actual court case. Were, are there like transcripts or, or videotapes or anything of that? Oh yeah. Position? Oh, sure. Good. No, there's a there's a public transcript. You ever, um, you ever watch the highlight reel? <laughs> um, no. Well, can, no, can I ask? No, so, having having sort of been a player in in that era, do you? No. And, and I've talked to a few people who have been active in in that uh, era. Like, do you? Like, like, are you going through any sort of sense of deja vu these days with <laughs> the kind of swirling sense of a you know an out of control executive and you know the lingering you know, scandals that seem to be enveloping the 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 Trump administration? Well, there's certainly there are many aspects of that era that are being uh, replayed today. There's no question about it. But in some ways, I think what's going on today is is, is more dangerous. Um, I think, you know, there was there was pretty strong and early pushback uh, against the gross civil liberties violations of the Nixon administration. Now, of course, the the Congress was not in the hands of the president's party. I mean, it was a there was a Democratic House so it was the, the concept of impeachment was um, was was not you know, was not far fetched. Um, today it's more problematic, um, and you know I think the 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 underlying theme of uh, a, a, a an executive or an authoritarian figure uh, who um, really has no interest in the basic principles of the rule of law, the freedom of the media, the independence of the judiciary, uh, all of those things, I think is more pronounced today than it was then. Um, so I, 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 in some ways, I see this as a more dangerous time. So, uh, However, I also think, and I've written about this, and I spoke about it in my talk at the Humanity in Action conference, you know, there are very strong and resilient elements of American democracy, and uh, they are asserting themselves right now. Uh, I think, you know, the courts have pushed back, and particularly on the uh, president's unconstitutional efforts to uh, ban classes of people from coming into the United States. Um, You know, you've had certainly the press, even though it's been constantly attacked by the president, um, I think in many ways is more vibrant today than than it was uh, a year or two ago. I agree. Whereas it seems like the the institution of Congress seems to be failing us, like the institutions of civil society are far more resilient than I think I gave them credit for myself, and including, you know, the ACLU, frankly, which is strongly relevant these days. So so for for how long were you at uh, ACLU? Uh, well, I was I was a, a lawyer doing um, casework like the one I've just described for about six years, and then I was the head of the Washington office uh, of the ACLU for another six years. So I was in there for about twelve years and, uh, until 1984 when I came to up to Harvard. And and so, how did you make the transition to doing uh, more internationally facing work? Well, I was in, I actually was involved in trying to get the ACLU more involved in international human rights. It was in the early stages. I mean, international human rights advocacy is something that's really only been developed over the last 25 years or so. Um, my colleague at the ACLU, Arya Nair, 
<clears throat> who went on to found Human, Human Rights, Rights Watch, Watch yeah. uh, is probably in many ways the father of, of uh, human rights advocacy in the U.S., and I was working very closely with him on on, on trying to develop a, an ACLU agenda in this area. So that was, and then I joined the board of Amnesty International, and I became the vice chair of of Amnesty, and, and when I was at Harvard, and uh, probably the most uh, practical and immediate uh, way in which I got involved in international affairs, particularly in human rights, was uh, in the South Africa. Um, anti-apartheid movement, and particularly the relationship of universities to that to that movement, and Harvard was really at the both at the forefront and the target of a lot of the uh, protests that were going on because people were trying to get Harvard to divest uh, itself of uh, its stock holdings in companies doing business in South Africa. Were you at that and point I, an executive in Harvard, or that happened before? I was the vice president at Harvard, working directly with Derek Bach, who was the president. Mm -hmm. And I and what I did was to I said that you know Derek was concerned that if uh, <clears throat> you know if if Harvard could be pushed to divest for one reason, it could be pushed to divest for any number of reasons, and it had a fiduciary responsibility to its students and its faculty to make sure that, that its endowment was protected and the independence of the academic freedom of the university was protected. So I said, Derek, here's, here's, here's what we should do. And he did it. Um, you should become the, the, the prime um, spokesman for university presidents uh, advocating in Congress that the United States develop a, a sanctions policy vis-a-vis -vis South Africa. And it's far going to be far more effective to get the U.S. and other countries uh, uh, imposing sanctions on South Africa than having individual universities divest themselves. And so he, he did that. He also Did you guys divested. eventually divest? Did Harvard uh, eventually they did, divest? Well, they, div they divested all uh, – Harvard divested uh, all uh, holdings in companies that were – uh, directly uh, doing business with the South Af African government. Um, that's different from companies that were doing business in South Africa more generally. It didn't divest of those. Um, so, you know, it was a, it was a very interesting campaign, and it was an effort to to connect my uh, domestic experience working with the Congress when I was at the ACLU uh, with my growing international. Uh, focus uh, coming through Amnesty International. So, uh, how did you end up at the State Department? Uh, in was it probably just in, in the first year of the Clinton administration? Yeah, yeah, I was. I spent the whole Clinton administration in the State Department. Um, well, I I knew a number of people who were involved in the in the campaign, and uh, in fact, uh, Bill Clinton I knew slightly. He'd been a couple of years behind me at law school, um, and. Uh, the very specific way in which I went in was that my position, the Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights at that point, was uh, being hotly contested by, uh, on the one hand, neoconservatives who wanted to move it back in the direction that had been had been in with the um, <clears throat> with the Reagan and 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 Bush administrations. And, um, you know, a number of, uh, people who, who were going to take a much more politically, uh, aggressive role to push back on neoconservatives. And I had no political profile. So, but on the other hand, I'd had a, a long 
civil rights and civil liberties profile and had been involved in NGO work. So I ended up being the sort of, if you will, compromise, compromise candidate for this otherwise hotly contested position. Well, what were, um, what were the neoconservatives at that point advocating should be the proper role of uh, DRL, the, the, the Assistant Secretary of, of Democracy, Rights, and Labor? Well, <clears throat> nobody nobody really knew at that stage because there had what they were, I mean, what the neoconservatives were advocating was some of the same things that Jean Kirkpatrick and others uh, of her uh, persuasion in the in the in the mid '80s had been advocating, which is a, a continuing, a very strong um, anti-Soviet uh, position and a very aggressive effort to to change uh, the way things were, um, uh, you know, had, had developed in the in the former Soviet Union, um, and of course, all that made sense in a certain sense. But there were a lot of other issues in the world, too, including what was beginning to emerge as these failed states in Rwanda and Bosnia, et cetera. So there was a kind of a contest between the old anti-Soviet neoconservatives and uh, those who, you know, were beginning to understand that they were going to have to move away from from the from the European focus in some ways as we develop a human rights policy. There was also a kind of contest between democracy promotion on the one hand and human rights promotion on the other. There shouldn't have been. And in fact, I, you know, one of my uh, roles as I developed this new position of, or the, the position of assistant secretary of human rights in the new post-Cold War era was to put the two back together again. But in the in the Reagan period, um, you know what was then DRL was largely involved in the you know promotion of democracy behind the Iron Curtain, mm-hmm. and um, and the human rights advocates were out there essentially you know dealing with Latin American dictators who were uh, some of whom were um, allies of of the U.S. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So th- that was that was the kind of conflict that was was underway. So so you took office in 1993, Three. Um, yeah. and and you know a year later, uh, April 1994, uh, the Rwanda genocide breaks out. Right. How yep. inside the State Department, from your you know perch there, did you experience this unfolding crisis, or did you detect this unfolding crisis, or was it just not detected in in any meaningful way? I think it was very, it was not detected effectively by anyone, um, inside or outside the State Department. With, with, there were some, there was certainly, there was certainly evidence, uh, in Burundi in particular in the previous year, uh, that, uh, there were mass killings that might develop. But the, the U.S. was putting almost all, and so were the Europeans, almost all of their emphasis on this, uh, peace process that was being uh, conducted uh, uh, between the what later became the genocide uh, proponents and the um, and 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 the government of Rwanda um, that was unfolding in uh, in Arusha, Tanzania. So um, when the genocide broke out in early April of '94. Uh, it, it was, it was a real surprise. Now there was information that had been, that had come forward into the U S government that I never saw, uh, that, um, I think was, uh, Earl, I've written about this extensively. I wrote a book about it. Actually, it's called freedom on fire. 
Um, and, you know, essentially the, the information that was coming in uh, from the field, from the UN commander, General Romeo Dallaire, who became quite famous for, for his, uh, you know, for, for his efforts to try to hold on to the UN force in Rwanda. Um, anyway, the, uh, you know, what, what he, what he said was that there were, there, there were real risks that genocide could break out, that the, uh, that the extremists were going after the government of Rwanda. They were going to use, uh, the ethnic differences between Hutus and Tutsis to, um, to seize power. Um, and that information got to uh, the UN and it, and it, I think almost certainly got to the U S ambassador in Rwanda, but it never got into the larger framework that, uh, that I was involved in. Uh, so anyway, the bottom line is that I didn't know a whole lot about what was going on until it all broke. Then it became clear as it broke that this was, this was a genocide. I think this became clear within the next three weeks in any event. And what was like uh, the, the, the policy debate at, at, at the time inside the, the state department? Well, the big policy, of course, was was uh, influenced by what had happened only six months earlier in Somalia. Mm -hmm. uh, and in Somalia, as you will recall, um, you know there was a there was a humanitarian mission that had been uh, introduced to try to assist the Somalis in dealing with this terrible famine that they had, um, at which then morphed into a, uh, a peacekeeping and peace enforcement mission. When the uh, various forms of, of humanitarian assistance, the food trucks, et cetera, that went in, got hijacked by some of the warlords, uh, Muhammad Idid and others, and that led to uh, these firefights, the most famous of which and the notorious of which was the famous Black Hawk Down, when uh, 16 U.S. Rangers lost their lives in Mogadishu in October of 1993. Um, and you know that this was a, a really signal event in the post early post Cold War period, and uh, indicated that it was going to be very difficult to uh, perform these humanitarian missions. It also indicated how little was understood by the West uh, in what was going on in these uh, in these failed and failing states, if you will, where there were no longer any clients of the Soviets and the, they weren't clients of either the Soviets or the, of the Americans. Um, so anyway, what the, were you the, personally advocating for then at the time? If like the politics didn't seem to, to, to line up with any sort of meaningful U S intervention with you know, the Clinton administration being, you know, just a, a year old, the Black Hawk down incident being right. sort of very fresh in, in one's memory. Like what, what personally were you advocating for or, or what were your discussions like at the time? Well, my my advocacy was consistent throughout with with several others inside, which is that we that the the UN force that was in Rwanda should be maintained; that it would be a disaster to withdraw it. Uh, that there was evidence as early as mid-April that the force uh, was, which was small to be sure but was able to provide some assistance to uh, Rwandans. And uh, General Dallaire was saying that, um, you know, if you give us the authority, we can actually block uh, the exits from the Kigali for the people with the machetes, et cetera. We can show force. So, um, 
you know, my my position was was uh, in, internally to advocate the continuation, the maintain maintenance of the uh, U.S. support for the existing U.N. force. But um, that was so badly undercut by another great event that took place at the time, a horrible event, which was the uh, the killing of uh, ten Belgian peacekeepers uh, about two weeks or a week after the genocide broke out, right after the president's plane was shot down and the peacekeepers were not only killed but they were they were decapitated and almost immediately afterwards uh all the uh, troop contributors uh, led by the belgians uh you know pressed to withdraw from rwanda and the u.s uh remembering and very much actively uh concerned about another possible somalia supported that withdrawal. Mm-hmm. I didn't support it, um, but that was the position that was being taken. What did losing that policy debate teach you about um, human rights advocacy more broadly? Well, I think it taught especially that um, you, you, you've, you've got to get allies and you, you have to frame the issues that you're pursuing in broader security terms than just human rights terms. And in fact, I think uh, as the Rwandan catastrophe unfolded, it became clear that it was a a security catastrophe every bit as much as a human rights catastrophe in the sense that there was a complete destabilization of a whole region of Central Africa, uh, a humanitarian catastrophe that uh, produced, you know, millions of refugees and, and cost uh, huge amounts uh, of money. I think that the, Congo uh, is still dealing with uh, you know, to, to, to and this the day. Congo the still dealing with it. Yeah. yeah. So if you if you if you don't address it at the time, it becomes a security crisis. So you know, finding ways of working with the military. I mean, my biggest enemies, if you will, in, internally in the U.S. government at the time, were the very people who later on in the Bosnian context became my 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 allies, and that was the uh, mid-level military uh, figures, uh, people who were um, actively trying to do everything they could to keep the U.S. from being drawn into another Somalia and Rwanda. Um, but by the time we got to Bosnia and the destabilization of 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 uh, Europe was was really at great risk as a result of what was happening in Bosnia. Um, you know, the military became an ally. Well, and uh, and and that was important. So, I mean, how how did that transition occur within the military? Like, why why did the military suddenly become an ally in this situation as opposed to uh, the other? NATO NATO was directly at risk. The relevance and continuation of the NATO alliance was was at risk. And there's like bureaucratic um, incentive, obviously, to, yeah, you know, secure, yeah, just like hard security incentives as well to want to maintain that right. alliance. Yeah, right. And, uh, you know, there were people within uh, General Wesley Clark, for example, who was then the uh, Supreme Allied Commander of NATO in, uh, in Europe, um, you know, was 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 beginning to see the security ramifications of these human rights catastrophes. 
Uh, and so, you know, I, he became a very close ally of mine. He was, he was one of the people who helped me get the Srebrenica and then later on uh, do further investigations of the genocide uh, so, that had taken place so, so around Srebrenica. Let, let me ask you about that. Like, how, how did you hear about what was happening in, in Srebrenica and how did you physically you know, get there? It seems not too long after the, the genocide. Yeah. Um, well, I heard about it by uh, through um, a friend who's, who was the U.S. ambassador in Croatia, Peter Galbraith. Uh, uh, he knew someone who uh, was working in the U.N. High Commission, the office of the U.N. High Commissioner for Refugees, who had just made a trip to uh, the Tuzla area where some of these refugees were coming in. And she had indicated that there was uh, there were rumors uh, of this of these mass killings, and there were even some uh, survivors who might be making their way to Tuzla over the over the mountains from Srebrenica. Um, so I, you know, I immediately uh, pushed for to have a mission to get out there, and and I was initially denied uh, permission to go because it was seen to be a security threat. Also, there was an important conference going on in London at the time that to try to stabilize Bosnia, and they didn't want to get in. They didn't want to have anything that might get in the way of that. But I pushed harder, and my allies were Dick Holbrook, Richard Holbrook, who became a very close associate in the coming months, uh, Wesley Clark, um, who I've mentioned before, and others, and so they. They overcame the reluctance of the Secretary of State to send me out there. Um, and when I went out there, I used the information that I'd gotten from Galbraith. And uh, when I got to Tuzla, I was able to interview about 10 uh, survivors of the uh, Srebrenica genocide and then sent a cable back to Washington, which uh, precipitated the effort to find aerial surveillance photographs of the uh, areas where the genocide had taken place, the grave sites that I'd identified, um, and those were then shown to the UN Security Council in late August of uh, 1995, and that led to the uh, resolution of the Security Council that NATO should be allowed to intervene. Hmm. And and uh, have you, I mean, that that's um, like an historic moment, obviously. Have you ever sort of thought and reflected on your own personal involvement on it and how any decisions you made at that time might have swayed this kind of historical outcome one way or, or the other? Um, yeah, I have, and I've written about it, as I've said. Um, I, you know, I think, I, I think there, was, there was a group of us, um, and in, in this sense it was patterned very much after what had happened in, in the Rwanda context, a small group of us in the government, uh, oriented toward human rights, concerned about this whole failed state phenomenon in the post-Cold War period, the disintegration of places and the human suffering that came about as a result of that. Um, and the small group of us included uh, Madeleine Albright, who was the then the UN uh, ambassador, uh, myself, uh, David Sheffer, who was working with Holbrook, with Albright and Holbrook very much, um, and several others in, in the white house. And we, uh, we began really about a year before the NATO intervention to, to, to become effect to try to become effective advocates within the government for changing U.S. policy, showing that the current policy was, you know, completely 
uh, feckless and was getting nothing accomplished. And in fact, if anything, was alienating the Europeans because the U.S. was talking about um, doing occasional airstrikes but contributing no troops to the UN peacekeeping force. And the, the Europeans, of course, were opposed to these airstrikes because it would have put their, their own troops at risk. Um, so, you know, I think one after another, uh, we overcame various hurdles. And then the horror of Srebrenica was enough to push the whole thing over the edge. Uh, but I, you know, I do think that the, the cable that I sent back um, and the interviews that I conducted uh, were um, something of a turning point in the Bosnian policy. So the the names that you just mentioned, uh, including yourself, are are among the people who uh, helped give life to the idea of a war crimes tribunal for right. uh, perpetrators of of these atrocities. And I should say, I was an intern through Humanity in Action at the yeah. Yugoslav War Crimes Tribunal right. um, in like 2003. Um, so, so I, I, you know, I, I, I physically worked in, in one of these tribunals, but I I know that the idea of a tribunal is, is something that, that you all kind of came up with. So where did that idea come from and and how did you like start to enact it and, and make it a reality? Well, it was, it really did come from the human rights community. And I give a lot of credit to Arya Nair and others who were early advocates, um, and with whom I was quite close and they brought this idea to me um, and and others, to Madeleine Albright and to uh, the people in the legal counsel's office in 1993. Um, you know, looking at this as an opportunity for Clinton to do something that would uh, prove his mettle on human rights, since he'd made a lot of campaign promises on that score. Um and so, you know, we we pushed quite early to develop this, and the statute for the tribunal was written in 1993. Um, it was Albright's office that was was doing this, uh, as well as the legal advisor Conrad Harper, uh, who was the then legal advisor of the State Department. Um, and and the the statute in the U.S. was the was the principal advocate of this in the Security Council in mid '93. And, uh, you know, it was it was never taken very seriously at the time by most people because it was seen to be just a kind of a fig leaf for a feckless U.S. policy that otherwise was doing nothing in Yugoslavia and in the in Bosnia in general and specifically. Um, And and so, um, you know, it it was tough going in the beginning because those of us who were pushing for it looked as if we were just going to do this because we couldn't get anything else done. But over time, and I think over time, what what happened, and this is really quite intriguing, is that the the model, what I would call the accountability model of peacemaking uh, became um, uh, something that that others uh, understood had legs and that um that is like no peace needed, without justice sort of thing well it's it's more it's more specific than that it's that um if you don't participate in in a in a in a good faith effort to bring peace you're going to be prosecuted and there there is even though we can't we can't threaten you with anything else we can threaten you with a prosecution now of course at that stage the prosecutions were it was going to be almost impossible to 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 get access to the 
to the defendants uh, and to bring them to trial. But still, I think the the accountability concept began to become uh, commonplace. And then after Srebrenica, uh, there was actually much more bite to the concept of of, uh, accountability because um, after all, at that stage, we had diplomacy backed by force, which was what the uh, NATO intervention was all about. So there were two things that could be threatened to those who were uh, intransigent in their uh, in their unwillingness to participate in a peace process. One was more bombing, and two was indictment by the war crimes tribunal. And I think I think it's one of those rare instances. I mean, because there's a lot of obviously controversy today about the International Criminal Court and its effect on peace processes, etc. But I think in the case of Bosnia, you have a rare example of uh, a a justice system newly created internationally that plays a very active role uh, in bringing about peace. And this, and and in that sense, there wasn't a conflict between between peace and justice in in the Bosnia sense. Um, and that and that's what we were that's what we were trying to accomplish, and and I think succeeded in doing that. Um, we're we're just about out of time, but I mean, I I can keep talking if you can, but I also want to be respectful of of your time as as well. Well, you know, there are two things that that I'll just bring up. Um, one, I. <laughs> Another part of the world that I was very actively involved in as Assistant Secretary of State for Human Rights was China, and I was the uh, I was President Clinton's, uh, for better or for worse, uh, point person on his ill-fated, most favored nation status uh, uh, effort to try to persuade the Chinese. The big political foreign policy goal, right of 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 uh, the, the the early Clinton administration. Well, yeah, it was a foreign policy goal, and I think um, again, written extensively about this. But you know what what the what the administration tried to do, and this is before I was even uh, in the job as, as Assistant Secretary of State, was to um, get the uh, you know to to get the Congress to support the administration's approach because the Congress had been the principal, uh, had been had been the most reactive force uh, on behalf of human rights uh, following the Tiananmen massacres of, of 1989, <coughs> and um, and the Clinton wanted to take control over this, so he said, "Leave it to me, and I'm going to use MFN." Um, and if the Chinese don't make significant overall progress on human rights, I'll deny them F- MFN. Well, uh, that was that was, I think, a <coughs> a bridge much too far because yeah. there were great economic interests in the U.S., particularly all the companies that wanted to do business with China, <coughs> who were uh, strongly opposed to that policy. So my job was to go out and try to get progress from China, but China, uh, in the all the <coughs> diplomatic meetings that I'd had. Uh, had with them during this period, the Chinese were, uh, <laughs> they were almost laughing at this idea that somehow they might have their most favored nation status and trading status taken away at the very time when American companies are flooding into China. So it was a, it, it was an ill-fated policy. <laughs> yeah, uh, they, as, they, it, as it happened, we 
did get some progress. We got a number of key dissidents out of prison. Um, we showed some progress on the the way in which the Chinese at that stage were dealing with Tibet, et cetera. But uh, it was, you know, it was it was not a it was not a, a positive result in overall. So that was one that was one issue. The final thing I'll bring up is totally unrelated to that, but it is sort of my own. Um, if you will, front row seat at the in the uh, changes that occurred in 1989. Um, and I'll just give you three quick anecdotes. Yes. One, Amnesty International sent me to uh, Prague, uh, Czechoslovakia then, uh, in gratifying that's 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 that that is gratifying and i've I've heard i've spoken to a lot of of people of of your generation who've had this kind of formative experiences uh, around 1989 and they all somehow seem to involve oslo pavel yeah yeah (laughs) quite a man Um, you know he was i was fortunate to get to know him quite well so uh, are you you're, you're teaching at tufts now is that right I'm at the Fletcher School. Yeah, I'm Fletcher. teaching at the Fletcher School. Great. Well, well. Thank any any books or articles or anything we can look forward to coming out in the near future. Um, well, there you know there are a couple of articles I've just published on on uh, comparing what's happening in Hungary today to what's happening in the United States. Uh, some of that I cover in that speech that you probably have seen, or maybe you haven't. I don't know whether you got the text of the speech, but I'll send you the articles if you want. They yeah. just came out last week. Well, well, yeah. Great. Well, I will post them uh, to the website. And thank great. you so much for your time. This was this is great. Good. Okay. All right. Thank you all. That was great. Really interesting conversation. I knew it would be. I actually 
uh, spoke with him uh, a few weeks ago for an article I was working on for the American Prospect, which I'm taking a look at uh, the effect that Donald Trump's presidency is having or might have on human rights around the world. And, and he gave me some, some pretty good insights to that end. All right. We'll see you soon. Bye. The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.